If you're trying to optimize anything in your life, it can help to look at the science. We want to know what's the best way to train, what's the best thing to eat, and even if beetroot juice will make us run faster. A repeatable double-blind study that's been peer-reviewed is the gold standard for research, and the results will finally make sense of all the questions we want answered. But there's a problem. Even to this day, most scientific studies either intentionally or unintentionally exclude women. Females are difficult to study because we have periods, fluctuating hormones, and babies. So we're left to take the advice that works for males and assume that's close enough. The reality is we're far from it. There are plenty of systemic, societal, political, and traditional reasons that females are not studied in the same way as males, and it can get frustrating if you let it get to you. But there is hope. Welcome to The Planted Runner. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and my mission is to help you improve your running, your mindset, and your life with science-backed training and plant-based nutrition. My guest today is journalist Christine Yu. In this episode, you'll learn why women have been traditionally excluded from scientific research on athletes, why that matters in the first place, and how new research specifically on the female athlete can transform the way you train, fuel, and recover. Christine Yu is an award-winning journalist whose work focuses on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. Her writing has appeared in Outside, The Washington Post, Runner's World, and other publications. Her new book, Up to Speed, explores the myths and gender biases of scientific research today and empowers people to excel in sport, regardless of sex or gender. It's a fascinating read for anyone who considers themselves a student of the sport. Before we get into the episode, if you've got a fall marathon or half marathon coming up, now is the time to make sure you have the tools you need. I'll tell you all about how you can reach your potential with the PR team later on in the episode. But if you're ready now, head to theplantedrunner.com slash group. Don't forget to stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode for another Mental Strength Minute. Fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. And now here's my conversation with Christine Yu. Welcome to The Planted Runner, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's dive into it right away. We, we would like to think that a sport, especially like running, is openly available and equal to all. We just put shoes on and go out the door, right? But the reality is that no matter how far we've come, there still is a long way to go. Can you give us some examples of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, like you said, running is one of the most basic things that we can do as humans that we were born to move, we were born to run. Um, but when we think about sports and just the way that sports in and of themselves were created and who they were created for, they were largely designed by and for men, right? Like back mm -hmm. to the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans and whatnot. Um, these were arenas for men to test their skills, to prove their masculinity and um, show their strength. And so, you know, for when we think about 
sports through that lens, right? Who it's created for and who it's really designed for, we, you start to think about like who's left out of that picture. And so a big piece of the picture population that's left out is really women, right? Like women weren't allowed to step on the starting line of, you know, even back in ancient Greece, women couldn't compete in the ancient Olympics, right? They had to have their own separate competition. It was, you know, in honor of the goddess Hera, um, instead of competing with the men. And even in that foot race, the, the distance that they were running was shorter than men, right? Kind of all of these assumptions about what women's bodies can do. And so again, if, if this is how sport has been set up from the very beginning, of course, it kind of colors, right? Like how then sports progresses and what it means to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've come a long way since the ancient Greeks, you know, and as far as I know, no one's uterus has fallen out from running. <laughs> but that was a big um, myth that was pervasive for a really long time, like even into the 80s. Is that correct? A very long time. I mean, that's the reason why women were prohibited or, or thought not to be suited to run long distances is because our uteruses would fall out. Um, and which is, I mean, kind of astonishing when you think about it, right? When you think about the fact it's like, well, the uterus is supposed to carry a child to term and, and all of that it does all these amazing things. Like how and why would it fall out from running long distances? But even, you know, aside from that, um, there were also beliefs that Women weren't suited to run long distances because our bodies couldn't manage or manage the temperature of the heat, right? Mm. That's generated. Um, and so one of the early pioneering sports, women sports scientists was Barbara Drinkwater. And so when she actually went back to look at some of the studies, because there was both studies that said, you know, it's like women's bodies just weren't suited for this for this stuff, but also studies that had said that basically after the age of 15, um, women shouldn't be doing physical activity, right? It was mm. somehow bad for them. But she would go back and look at the actual studies that, you know, <laughs> seem, you know, it's that the findings would, would come to these conclusions and found that, you know, they were comparing you know, men who have been active, who have, you know, are regular athletes against girls and women who were sedentary, right? Who weren't given that opportunity. So you're training to, you're comparing two very different populations. So of course, men who are actually trained to run and used to that, of course, their bodies are going to be adapted and be able to manage those temperatures versus a woman who might not be, right? But when mm-hmm. she actually started to study, women runners and marathon and distance runners back in the seventies, she found this. Nope. Like <laughs> women's bodies were, you know, also very capable of, you know, adapting and managing these temperature differences. So that's a lot of, um, again, kind of these myths and this gender bias that, um, infuses a lot of our beliefs about sports, about who can do what and why, um, when in fact we haven't actually studied a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you do make a point in your book up to speed, um, before we get too deep into our discussion that, you know, I would love to have a discussion of just men and women, but there's a problem there. There is a spectrum, both biologically and of course, socially, that every human on the planet is not simply either or. 
um, we exist on a spectrum, as you point out in the book. This this makes everything wonderfully diverse, but also way more complicated. <laughs> so can you explain some of the language, the inclusive language that you use in the book, just so when we're having our discussion here, we're all on the same page and we know what we're saying here? Sure, absolutely. I think traditionally, right, we think of sex as male or female, and it's something that's determined by you have like XX chromosomes. If you are a woman, you have XY chromosomes. I'm like, now I'm like, wait, is that right? <laughs> XY <laughs> chromosomes right. If, if you're, if you're a male, right? And, and it's all determined from that. And, you know, then you go down these very two, you know, separate forks in the road. And, you know, that influences everything from, um, you know, secondary sex characteristics to your genital organs and, um, and hormones and all of that. Um, but the reality is, is that, um, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's more complicated than that, that, um, the, the fork in the road isn't so, um, clear and distinct all the time. And that, you know, what we generally think of as, you know, a female body or as a woman, right. You know, it, it, that's, what we generally think of in terms of like, you know, again, these chromosomes and the way that react to these hormones and all of these things, but there's a wide diversity between that. And so in the, in the book, I, um, I use the word female very deliberately and specifically when I'm talking about physiology or specific anatomical features or characteristics. I never, I don't use that word to describe any specific person because, mm -hmm. um, there can be people who have female bodies who might not identify right as a woman. Um, or there could be someone who has, yeah, like features of female bodies, but again, like their gender, their gender identity might not be, you know, what we typically, what we typically associate, right. With, with a mm -hmm. woman, um, and vice versa, same thing with on the, on the male, on the male side too, like, using those words only specifically when I'm talking about a very specific category of, um, of issues, right. Of mostly mm -hmm. physiology, mostly biology, um, anatomy, but never using that to really define any one person. Um, okay. yeah. And I usually defer to obviously whatever, uh, gender identity, if I'm interviewing someone, right. What their gender identity is, um, I will use terms such as like girls or women within a more like social con uh, context, like women's sports, women's health mm -hmm. um, that we might be a little bit more used to. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a tricky one to kind of navigate because it was really important to me to be able to use more inclusive language and to be more inclusive in this book. Yeah, yeah. Well, we certainly have a long way to go in that area that is um, completely well, I was about to say it's completely new. It's not new. It's been around for a long time, but it, our language around that subject is constantly evolving. Um, but I want to kind of um, go back to what you were talking about temperature in the female athlete. So temperature is a really interesting um, data point because obviously when our body core temperature rises too hot, we have to stop running. We can't keep going, um, whether you're a male or a female or anywhere in between. But a woman's, a, a female's temperature is constantly fluctuating mm -hmm. all throughout the month. So that must make it very complicated and complex to study us. Is that why we're not included in more of the research? 
Yeah, I mean, historically and traditionally, that's largely been the reason why. Um, because when you think about scientific studies, they scientists generally want to study a very specific thing, right? And they want to understand how that one thing works. So they want to get rid of anything that's extraneous, anything that might be complicating. Um, and so something like hormones makes it complicated, right? Especially when you have hormones that are constantly fluctuating, that aren't always predictable, um, because that then means that the scientist has to take more time to account for those changes, to control for them. That can mean more money that they have to spend yeah. on these on these studies and experiments. It could mean that, um, you know, logistically that can affect like how they actually schedule and set up these studies as well. So, you know, from a very, you know, simplistic perspective, it's just easier to study men because men don't have, men's hormones don't fluctuate to the same extent, right, as women's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a big deal because it for sure can, again, add just noise to the data that makes it hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah, well, and but it, you also think about where is the most research done? It's done at universities. Where mm -hmm. are, you know, who is applying for these research studies? It's usually college students because they're there and they're poor <laughs> and they, you know, maybe they get paid to, you know, do this study or whatever. But yeah. um, one interesting thing is that you noted that females don't seem to apply for these studies in um, as in large numbers as males. Is that true? Why? Yeah. So it's something called volunteer bias, right? So, you know, while on the one hand, it might be, you know, a big part of the issue might be this method methodology question, right? That scientists like don't want to, don't want to study women because it's complicated. But on the flip side of that, it might also be a, an issue of volunteer bias, right? This question of who actually raises their hand and says, Hey, I'll do this. Um, I'll take time out of my schedule. I'll do this like sports science study, which, you know, can involve like you know, drawing blood or like running really hard on a treadmill or, you know, doing a real hard like thing on the stationary bike. Um, so it's not like just showing up and s filling out a survey a lot of mm -hmm. the times. So that might affect like who chooses to show up. And so this is, there hasn't been a ton of research around it to be able to say like, yes, for sure, that's a reason, but it is um, a potential reason why some of this, again, skews more towards men and, and boy, you know, collegiate, uh, yeah, men in, mm -hmm. in sports uh, to do these studies. Well, hopefully that will start to change because obviously men and women or males and females, we have a lot of things in common, but there are a lot of differences that are um, not well understood at this point. What would you say are the biggest things that we don't understand yet? Yeah, I think a big one is the is the influence of the menstrual cycle on you know training adaptation and performance um largely because we haven't been studying this and paying attention to it um but also because those hormones that are involved in the menstrual cycle play you know play a really big role or potentially a big role in you know factors like metabolism temperature regulation like we talked about um uh, mental health, muscle mass, bone health, like all of these other areas that can potentially affect, you know, your training and performance. Um, so 
right now, researchers don't know to what extent, right, these fluctuating hormones could play a role, um, in what degree, in what magnitude or direction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is it positive? Is it negative? So I think that's a, that's a big area that folks are really trying to understand more. Um, and I think another area that is starting to, people are starting to like pay more attention to that I think is important too, is really understanding the whole context in which an athlete is functioning in training, right? So we're not just, yes, understanding stuff like biomechanics and, you know, uh, nutrition, or like we said, you know, menstrual cycle and all of that's important, but that's again, just kind of your body, right? But you as a person exist within this larger context of life. And so that also could potentially influence how you perform, how you adapt to training. So that includes things like, you know, resource availability, right? Like what kind of resources are available? Um, that includes things like, um, you know, gender norms around, say, like strength training and whether or not someone has is encouraged to strength train, is taught how to do that, has access to those facilities. So and, you know, even things like gear, right, like how having a gear, uh, you know, a piece of gear that is actually designed and suited for you versus using something that's not could, again, potentially affect things like fatigue and injury risk. Um, so I think, like again, pulling back the curtain a little bit to look at these other issues that might be contributing to you know how we adapt to training, how we perform, what our injury risks are. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much in that. Um, uh, when, you know, to the menstrual cycle part, I, um, I, as a running coach, I often get people, uh, who come to me and say, Hey, can you make a plan based on my menstrual mm-hmm. cycle? Can you do that? And I'm like, I-, I can't actually do that. No, I, I, first of all, I don't know your menstrual cycle. We <laughs> could learn this together and try to figure it out. There are some people on the internet that say they have it figured out and are offering things like Mm -hmm. that. I, you know, I am a menstruating female, but I don't understand it. And uh, is this something that really um, is well-researched enough to offer to people at this point? Yeah. So, I mean, I a hundred percent understand like this hunger, right? For information and this idea that well, if we haven't been paying attention to women for so long and we have this new information, so like, let's use it, right? Like let it, maybe this is the missing thing, right? The missing link that's keeping me from performing to the best of my potential. Like I totally get that. And it's something that, you know, I know for myself that I've wanted to kind of latch onto as like the solution. Um, but I think right now the research isn't quite, isn't conclusive, you know, and it's, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, one is that this is a really new, still a new area um, where researchers are still just starting to ask the question and, and refining what those questions are. Um, some of it is just because of the research that does exist. There's some really good studies out there, but there are some like poor quality studies, say. So it makes it hard to generalize um, across those. But I think the biggest piece of it is that the menstrual cycle and the experience of it is so individual, right? So, and it changes um, month to month (laughs) across your lifespan. And so it's not like one set thing where you can say, I will 
you know, on day four, my estrogen progesterone ratios are, you know, always going to be this and I'm going to have this symptoms. And then on day 11, it's going to be this. It, those things always change and how you react to that or, you know, how that manifests in your life is also going to change. Um, and so I think it's more a question of really paying attention to yourself and what, you know, yeah, maybe tracking your cycle, you're probably tracking your symptoms to see if there are any trends that you can kind of pinpoint or note. Um, but it really like what you do with that information really is going to depend on yourself. Um, and I think the other piece that people often forget about is that, you know, we talk about, you know, something like cycle syncing, right? Like this, mm. that whole idea of um, kind of tailoring your workouts to your cycle, you know, like, by saying it's like, oh, in this phase, you should do this. In this phase, you should do that. But again, your cycle isn't always going to be like a textbook 28-day cycle. And with ovulation at day 14, like knowing actually what cycle you're or what phase you're in, like would actually require you to either do blood tests, saliva tests, or, you know, like ovulation using like an ovulation kit, right? To kind of really determine where you are. Um, so it's a lot more involved than just saying, oh, I'm on day seven say, right. or something like that. I want to tell you about a unique opportunity for you to get stronger, faster, and stay motivated to hit all your running and nutrition goals this year. And that is to join the PR team. I started it last fall and I have to tell you, it's even better than I imagined. Each member of the team gets a custom training plan made by me for you based on your unique fitness, goals, and lifestyle. Everything you need to crush your running dreams is included, such as strength training, recovery, and even cross-training if you want it. I include weekly mental strength training as well as tips and nutrition guides. But here's where it gets really cool. The group has its own page in the app where we share workouts, ask training questions, and get feedback from me and the other teammates. And each week I create an exclusive private podcast just for the team based on the questions I get and what I see in their training each week. And I usually end up sharing behind the scenes and exclusive sneak peeks with the team that I don't share anywhere else. So instead of joining a Facebook group or sitting through another Zoom call, you get to listen to tailored advice on the run and you don't have to do all of this alone. So if you are ready to take your running to the next level and join an amazing team of runners, head to theplantedrunner.com slash group and join us today. It's more affordable than you think, and I can't wait to have you. Before I get back to the conversation, I want to talk about a massive problem that I see with runners everywhere, and especially plant-based runners. You know that I'm the first to tell you that you can absolutely get everything you need from a plant-based diet as an endurance runner, but most runners are struggling. With our busy lives and time-consuming training schedules, making sure that you get enough to fuel your training and making sure that it's actually optimal for your health and performance is a real challenge. So that's why I tell all my athletes to make nutrition simpler and get Neurofi Plus by Prevenex. In less than a minute, you can mix their superior quality protein shake up with just water in a shaker bottle. And it actually tastes delicious. That is not the case with other plant-based powders I've tried. 
You can enjoy Neurofy right after our workout, knowing you are getting everything you need for muscle repair with none of the junk that you're going to get in one of the lower quality powders. Another cool way to use it is to mix up a couple of scoops with water or warm plant-based milk right before bed. Studies have shown that taking 20 to 30 grams of protein right before bed is the optimal time for protein synthesis and muscle repair that we all need. Look, this is the only product that I'm working with, and that's for a very good reason. I believe in Prevenex quality, their mission, and I use Neurofy Plus myself. And I'm not the only one. Lindsay Hine of All Have Another, Jason Fitzgerald of Strength Running, Whitney Hines of The Mother Runners, Elite Athlete, Emily Enfeld, and so many others in the running world are passionate about Prevenex too. If you're ready to simplify your nutrition and optimize your fueling, you can try Neurofy for 15% off the regular price with my code PR15. That's PR15 at Prevenex.com. Hear Her Sports is a podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve and make a difference in their lives. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery, a former professional cyclist. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in the business of sport through a thoughtful conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. My guests and I explore the glorious and frustrating issues in sports, history, equity, training, nutrition, and so much more. Join us for inspiration, for community, and for love of being a strong athletic woman. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people get way, <laughs> way into this stuff. But I think it's it's kind of hard for an athlete who is used to pushing herself or himself mm -hmm. and is used to pushing through pain, used to pushing mm -hmm. through being tired, saying I'm on day whatever of my cycle. That makes sense that I'm tired. But am I just being lazy or am I, you know, I really should get out there. And, you know, the whole listen to the body thing is sometimes tough for athletes, sure. you know? So uh, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, right. You're like, am I just, you know, kind of wimping out a little bit, yes. right? Like, and yes. not going and doing the workout. That's why I think it, it does, it is important to track your symptoms for a while, right? Like, and it's more than a month. It's more than two months. It's, you know, probably to get a good sense of what's going on or what your trends might be. It is maybe tracking for like three to six months or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then you can see, yeah. So if always around like day 20 to 23, I'm feeling really fatigued and it happens regularly, then yeah, maybe it, that is something more to do with your cycle 
versus, you know, I'm just really tired from like a night out or like, I just don't want to do this workout (laughs) or whatever it might be. Right. But that gives you more data to then make a a better decision for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, um, what I found the most interesting chapter of the book that you wrote was, um, all about sports bras Mm -hmm. (laughs) and because, you know, you think, oh, you know, in order to run well, you need to strap those things down because it's painful yeah. to run if they're bouncing all over the place. But the engineering it actually takes to make a proper sports bra that fits all kinds of people is actually incredibly challenging. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've all heard the jokes just about like bouncing boobs and we just assume like boobs go up and boobs go down and we just need to like kind of control, like you say, control that and just strap them really close to the chest to stop that. Um, but I think it's because again, we think of breasts as this almost accessory appendage. It's like, you know, oh, just this thing that's like slapped on, you know, female bodies or whatever it is. What does it have to do with sports or performance, right? Um, that we've never studied it or really studied it in earnest until the last maybe 20 years or so. Um, but if you don't study something, you can't then design a garment that can actually control for that movement or, you know, be comfortable, really. Um, and so what, when scientists have actually started to get the technology so that they can really look at this in a, in a biomechanics lab, they found that the actual movement of breast tissue, it almost looks like a kind of like butterfly wings, like a figure eight Mm. movement. So it's not just up and down, it's in and out, it's side to side. So it's a really complicated movement to control for. And because breasts, I mean, essentially, you know, there's no real structure or scaffolding, right. To kind of, you know, support it, um, that, that also complicates matters too. Um, so yeah, so scientists are really trying to really thread that line between what's supportive, but what's also comfortable, because again, that's something that can vary by individuals. Some people like to feel really locked down, right. And have that compression. Other people don't, it's really claustrophobic. Um, Mm -hmm. and so they're, they're looking at, you know, are starting to design different types of bras that account for these differences, um, that, you know, are both comfortable and supportive because yeah, like you don't have to always sacrifice comfort in the name of support. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's some also some sad, um, information that you talked about that, that women or young girls, simply don't get into sports because they're embarrassed by their size or they don't know how to run comfortably or their gait might be different because Mm -hmm. they kind of have to keep their arms closer to their chest to keep things from moving. And it's a real barrier for some women. Absolutely. Yeah. So for, especially for adolescent girls, it's like one in two girls sighted breasts as a big barrier to physical activity. And it can be, you know, like you said, everything from just the discomfort of running and moving, um, with, as they're developing breasts and getting used to that. Um, it could be because they don't have access to sports bras. It could be things like, you know, people making fun of them, right? Like Mm. parents or 
you know, fellow classmates or whatever, commenting on their boobs or whatever. And yeah, that's a hundred percent embarrassing. And, you know, you don't want to do it in that sense. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, also when you think about, um, you know, with people with bigger breasts too, that is a huge barrier because, you know, I mean, if you kind of go into a store and look, a lot of the sports bras available are are pretty much in like, you know, conventional sizes. There aren't always really good sports bras or available sports bras for larger chest, chested people, um, and for bigger body people. So that's also a barrier because yeah, if you don't have that support, you're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to make you less likely to want to, you know, be active. And then it just creates this vicious circle. Right. Or you have to pay an arm and a leg for a bra. You know, there are some companies out there doing it, but they're super, super expensive if you're getting something custom or an unusual size. Well, hopefully marketers and businesses understand that there is a need for this and and will go into that space. I mean, do you see more companies, you know, doing that? Yeah, definitely starting to see more companies you know, moving into extended sizes, you know, both in terms of sports bras, as well as just athletic gear, um, recognizing that, like you said, that there is a bigger market out there. And that market for kind of, you know, that extended size is pretty sizable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are starting to recognize that. I mean, part of the reason, again, why those extended sizes are less available is because it they're hard to create, right? Because, when you think about regular size clothes, it goes through this process, what's called grading, right? So it's just like you kind of increase the size proportionally, but when you get past or beyond a certain size, you it doesn't quite work that way, right? Like mm-hmm. things get a little bit distorted. It doesn't quite fit right. So it take it requires another process in and of itself to create these extended sizes. Mm. It's fascinating. Well, hopefully there'll be more choices in the future. I would, I'd like to kind of pivot towards um, nutrition and fueling for women. So as uh, the exercise scientist, Stacey Sims points out, we are not just small men. We are different and fueling is one way that we're definitely different. So how should we, how should we fuel differently than men? And why is underfueling especially dangerous for women? Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, baseline foundation for everyone, men and women is just making sure that you're feeling enough. You're eating enough um, consistently throughout the day because, you know, as researchers have looked, you know, studied more and more like the effects of underfueling, it's pretty insidious. Right. And um, it's something we don't even probably notice. And so for female bodies, it's particularly worrisome, um, essentially because your body freaks out. It thinks that it's starving. And so in response to that, it starts to shut down non-essential systems. So, you know, one of those being your reproductive system. That's why you might start to see after a little while uh, disturbances in your menstrual cycle um, where you are having irregular periods or not having your periods at all. And the reason why that that's concerning is because that regular surge of hormones is super critical for bone health, for, mm-hmm. you know, building bone mass and maintaining that bone mass, um, as well as, you know, it has an effect on like a muscle mass. It has an effect on cardiovascular health. All of these like downstream effects, like, you know, 
start to happen, right? You know, it's, it's almost like you start to open the floodgates, if you will. Um, and so it, it creates this huge cascade of things that start to happen in your body that can influence absolutely athletic performance, but more concerningly, your long-term health. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like uh, women are more sensitive to any, you know, this downturn in nutrition. So anytime you aren't have, you don't have enough fuel in your body, that our bodies are smarter, right? In the sense that it starts to react faster than men's bodies might. So that's one big thing. Um, the other thing that seems to happen too is that women's bodies are more sensitive to downturns in carbohydrate uh, nutrition. So when you don't take in enough carbohydrates, again, the body starts to like freak out and starts to set off all of these flares, right? Be like, hold on, what's going on here? You know, we have to start like conserving things. Um, and so that's why thing, you know, I know Stacy talks about this a lot. Things like say like keto diet doesn't work well for female bodies because you're not getting that um, influx of carbohydrates, which is really important for female bodies. Mm-hmm. I, I can't agree with you more, but I, whenever I bring up this topic, I get some pushback about um, weight loss because so many people, myself included, started running to get in shape, to lose a little weight, to look better, mm-hmm. to feel better. And when I tell people, well, you still need to eat <laughs> and you still need to feel well. And they're like, well, I've got 10 pounds to lose. I've got 20 pounds mm-hmm. to lose. Like, how do you balance it? Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest thing, right? Especially for women and girls, because on the one hand, we're told, you know, with all of this like diet culture messaging and like body image, you know, concerns, like that there's one type of body that we need to be, especially if we want to be an athlete and it looks like this and it's generally thin and lean and and what have you. Um, But then on the other hand, like if you do want to be an athlete, like you said, you need fuel to actually do the things that you want to be able to do and adapt to that training. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, when this comes up, I always, I tell the story and it's actually in the book about the new, the New Zealand rowing team. Right. So, um, it was after the 2016 Olympics, they noticed that, you know, all the elite row- rowers, pretty much all of them had like menstrual, uh, dysfunction of some sort. Um, and this was really concerning, obviously, to the coaches, but they, the, you know, kind of governing body made this huge effort to focus on just having athletes eat more and kind of changing the messaging within the organization. You know, not that lean is faster, not that, you know, you have to be a certain weight, but that you need to fuel your body. And the whole team kind of got on board with this and supported each other doing this. Um, and so one, and, you know, in the, you know, Tokyo Olympics, they, rowing was one of the most successful events for the country, women's rowing. They won, I don't, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say like four medals in the seven events or something. It was something like that. Um, but one of the rowers that I spoke with, you know, she had been a lightweight rower her whole life. And so cutting weight and restricting has always been what she's, she's done. And she was really nervous and hesitant to do this because like, I'm going to put on weight. But what she realized was that when she actually ate enough, she actually was able to get through her workouts better, right? She Mm -hmm. wasn't totally exhausted by the end of her workouts. And because she could do her workouts better, her performance was better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of, and she wasn't gaining weight. She was staying at the same, you know, weight that she was 
again, because she was able to continue to do her workouts strong and, you know, gain all of the adaptations that she needed to become this, you know, world-class rower. Um, so that's the thing. It's like when your body is actually fed, it can relax. It can do the thing that it needs to do. And it doesn't feel like it needs to like hold on so tightly to, you know, I don't want to say extra weight, right. But like to whatever, you know, is you are giving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that example. What are the unique challenges for plant-based athletes? Yeah. I think with plant-based athletes, again, you know, some of the sports dietitians that I spoke with, you know, had said that one of the biggest challenges, again, is just making sure that their athletes eat enough because, mm-hmm. right, like a lot of plant-based foods tend to, tends to be pretty fiber rich. And so you can feel full faster um, before you might, right, kind of meet all your caloric needs. So I think that was a big piece of it for them is just, again, making sure that their athletes eat enough, um, but also making sure that they're getting a good mix of, again, like, they're not just eating salads all the time, right? right? But that they're eating like the protein and the carbohydrates and, and teaching them, um, kind of different like mixes on their plate, right? Like if you think of the plate as like a, a piece of pie, like how that might shift, um, depending on where they are in their training. But I think, mm-hmm. but yeah, overall, I think the biggest piece for them was this issue around just making sure you get enough calories and then, yeah. you know, and then thinking about the other like macronutrients. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Perfect. So we've been told this narrative forever that because women are on average, we're smaller than men, we're never going to be as strong. We're never going to be as fast, but where do women excel? So this is, I mean, it's exciting to see, especially in the endurance world. And especially when we look at ultra endurance events, um, that women seem to perform really well, right? You have folks who are winning events outright. I know Camille Heron just like won, you know, some event. Ult- yeah, yeah. Yes, yesterday or something like yeah. that. Yeah, an ultra marathon. She broke the, the record. She the broke men's the all time record yeah. for anybody. Yeah. Um, so you have folks like that. You have folks like uh, Sarah Thomas, who is a marathon swimmer, who is was the first person to swim across the English Channel four times in a row, which is bananas to me. Bananas. Um, but, you know, it's it's you see that as distances get longer, that gap right between men's records and women's records starts to get smaller. Um and so there are a couple of reasons that, you know, experts think that might be sure there might be some like physiological reasons why, um, in terms of women, you know, are better at burning fat, right? Like, and if we can tap into that store of energy, you know, you can kind of keep going, keep going, if you will, right? As distances get longer. Similarly, women tend to have more uh, slow twitch muscle fibers. So those muscle fibers that kind of, again, are good for endurance events versus, you know, the fast twitch ones, which are all about power and strength. So there are some of those issues there. But what I think is also really interesting is that as distance gets longer, um, some of those physiological uh, advantages that men might have, right, like the higher VO2 max um and, and things like that start to play a, like less of a role, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like one of, I remember one researcher I spoke with, he's like, 
your VO2 max doesn't matter if you can't like keep any food down and you're bonking, right? right? Um, So as distances get longer, there are other factors that start to play more of a role, I think, in in performance and what that means. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, you know, we talked about um, menopause. Right, we haven't talked about menopause. That's the next area that I wanted to get. We talked about the menstrual cycle, but mm-hmm. then what happens when we lose the menstrual cycle? So again, I work with a lot of athletes who are, you know, in their 40s and 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and that is what they want to know. What's going on, number one? <laughs> and how can I stop all the bad things from happening? <laughs> yeah, well, right, because it is this like huge void um, in the sense that we don't talk about menopause at all. Like up until probably the last two, like year or two, I don't think like menopause actually ever came up in like public conversation. Um, because, you know, again, it's, it's this period, it's like the bookend to puberty, right? Where your menstrual cycle is starting to wind down. Um, your hormone levels are a bit more erratic, right? So kind of up and down and who knows what it's doing at that point. Um, but because it's often been assumed that, you know, women, it's kind of like women's utility in society, if you will, in culture and society, you know, that's when we become less useful because we can't have children anymore. Um, we haven't really paid attention to this stage of life. And so we, we don't have a lot of research. And so, we, yeah, we have all of these women who grew up, you know, at the cusp of Title IX, you know, during Title IX, who have been active for most of their lives, who are now approaching, you know, menopause or in menopause uh, or postmenopause, who want to know what's going on. And so it's really confusing. Um, I will say, like, there are 100%, right, like physiological changes that are happening in the body because of the hormone levels kind of dropping and what that means. And so the way that you feel, um, and how exercise feels different is absolutely valid, right? Like it's not in your head. It's not like forget all of these adages that like age is just a number. Like it, it's, it's physically happening, right? Like, mm-hmm. but I think it's recognizing that again, this is a period of transition. This is a period where your relationship to physical activity, um, will likely need to adjust in some way. Um, but it does not mean that, you know, your, your best days are behind you or you can't be active anymore, if that makes sense. It um, does. Yeah. But it just might mean that your body needs, you know, some different stimulus than what you're doing in your twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you had a magic wand, what kind of, um, what kind of questions would you want to answer when it comes to this period of, of our lives? Yeah. I mean, as I'm kind of, I have no idea where I am in this like transit, but I'm like definitely (laughs) in this like weird spot. Um, But like, I do want to know how, you know, what are the best ways to exercise and train, right? That um, both can kind of give me that same sense of feeling of training when I was younger, right? And that same sense of accomplishment. Um, while allowing me to do some of the things that I still love. Right. So I know Stacy Sims talks a lot about how like, mm-hmm. oh, you shouldn't just keep doing all your long, slow runs. You know, you need to add more like high intensity work, which like I get. Um, but I also really enjoy, you know, 
the long, slow runs too, and yes. all of that. So it's like, how do we balance that? What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of nutrition as well? Right? Like, as our bodies start to change, as our hormone levels start to change, how can I think about nutrition differently to, I guess, create a supportive environment in my body, right? To A, support the changes that I'm going through, but B, like, just give me also the energy um, and fuel that I need, right? To mm-hmm. adapt to the changes that are going on and to feel good generally. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really kind of a good place to wrap it up. I uh, think all of these questions that you brought up in your book, I've got it here up to speed, are really important questions. Um, We don't have all the answers, and there's probably more questions than answers at this point. Um, So what's what's next for you? Where is your work going to take you next? Um, that's like the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I'm not quite, so I haven't totally ruled out writing a second book, but I'm haven't quite landed on what that's going to be yet. Um, part of me wants to hear the reaction from folks to this book, to, you know, the questions that it brings up, the things that people are still curious about, um, to help inform me kind of as I go forward, but I'm, you know, I'm a journalist by trade, so I'm still writing a lot for a lot of different places. Awesome. And finally, where can people connect with you, Christine? Yeah. So, um, on Twitter and Instagram, I am at CYU888. Um, and my website is christinemu.com. And so that will have updates on writing and upcoming book events and the like. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Christine, to be on The Planted Runner and for raising such important questions. Hopefully uh, the world takes notice and we get some answers really soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for the Mental Strength Minute. Fortify your mind in 60 seconds or less. Today's topic is take 24 hours. After a race, take 24 hours to feel all the emotions and then let them pass. If it was a great race, celebrate and congratulate yourself on your amazing work. If it was a bad race, allow yourself to mourn and be upset. Then the next day, get on with your recovery and planning for the next goal. When we spend too much time ruminating or celebrating, it can cloud our judgment. Beating ourselves up clearly doesn't help, but neither does riding too high on our success for too long because it can set us up for failure if we can't repeat the results. So enjoy your triumphs, mourn your losses, and then get back to building new memories. Thank you for listening to or watching The Planted Runner, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Don't forget that you can win a copy of my book for leaving an Apple podcast review. So be sure to write yours right after your run today. Reviews are the number one way to boost this show's reach. And it's a great way to tell me what you'd like to hear next, because I read every single one. Have a great run today. There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That Total Mom Sense, the podcast. 
I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you.